If you have your Bibles, if you can take them and turn to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. I open God's Word, and particularly a book like Philippians, it's so easy because a modern communication for me to take for granted some things. It's amazing. I mean, I can get on real time, I can talk with someone literally around the world and real time hear what's going on, whether it be uh, even texting real time. And, and it's easy to take some things for granted these days. It may, it may make us where we don't fully appreciate what it took for Paul to pen a few words that we call the book of Philippians and write those words and then send it via courier in a, t- in a time where travel was very expensive. And doing this, I mean, it would mean something to them to be able to get this letter. And so I want us to listen carefully as we hear God's word read, but let's have an appreciation that it was never just really easy to get, get uh, communication transferred from one location to another. So I've asked Jen Lane to come up and read. She's going to be re- begin reading in verse 12. Jen is coming, Philippians chapter 2, in verse 12. Good morning. There, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among you who shine as lights of the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul doesn't assume that the Philippians would figure out everything on their own of what it means to live the Christian life. So he gives them some specific instructions that I think will not only not only would it help them, but it helps us, of what it means to live the Christian life. Kind of just so we could process exactly where Paul goes with this, maybe start off by saying this. In light, this is one of the instructions that Paul gives. In light of your past obedience, keep working out your salvation. In light of your past obedience, he says in verse 12, keep working out your salvation. So the Philippian believers have a track record of obedience. Paul has told them to walk worthy as, as worthy citizens uh, of a different kind of kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and they've been doing that. And, and Paul has told them to walk in humility, and they've been acting in that way. And Paul said to con- consider others more important than themselves, and they have been doing those things. And now he says, you have obeyed in my, in my presence, now much more in my absence. I'm calling, drawing upon that past obedience. There's a good work that's been started in your life. And in light of that good work, let's complete it. Let's see God do something in your lives. 
And after he draws upon that past obedience, I think what we see in Scripture is we begin to wade into some of the deeper waters uh, of, of understanding what, what God is saying. There's sometimes Scripture that I wish it would have like a caution sign, like a re, uh, an orange barrel or something to tell us, you're about to go into some areas that, that are challenging to understand, and we've got to really think carefully about that. I think this is one of those areas. So if we take that at verse 12, as you've always obeyed now, so not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, fear and trembling are the appropriate responses to a holy God. That, that is the right response. There will never be a time where we shouldn't walk in awe and reverence of God for his holiness, for his actions. So Paul is saying to walk in that, walk in that fear and trembling. But he says to to work out your salvation. The end of verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You hear the word salvation, and, and it's regularly used in churches. So we, we might think we know automatically what that means, what that doesn't mean. I just don't want to take that for granted. So the word salvation is just another word for rescue or deliverance. So when Paul says, work out your salvation, he's talking about the deliverance that God had accomplished for them. We were rebels in our own sin, and God delivered us from our sin, from death, from hell, from Satan, rescued us out of that. That is what we talk about when we talk about salvation. And, and the way we apply that to our own lives is the Bible would say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be delivered. You will be rescued. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be delivered, will be rescued. Work out that. Work out your salvation. Give effort. Give struggle. Give thoughtful activity to this daily activity of working out what it means that you are a Christian. Show by your life that you know what it means that you are delivered. As you came to the Lord humble and grateful and dependent, keep working that out. Keep working out the fact that your sins have been dealt with. We sang about that just a moment ago. Our, our debt has been paid, and so no longer are, do we have this record of debt that stands against us with all that demand. But in light of that, in light of our sins being dealt with, walk in righteousness, walk in holiness. Work out your salvation. In light of being reconciled to a holy God, an almighty God, salvation means you're reconciled to him. Work that out. Work out the implications of that in your daily life. Give effort to that. Struggle toward that end. In your salvation, your future is secure. Your eternity is secure. So work out what it means to live as a citizen of heaven, filled with the love of God, filled with love of neighbor. In your salvation, you've been made right with the Heavenly Father, so pray to Him and rest assured that He cares about His children. In your salvation, God has created not just like individual people who are saved, but a, but a whole group of people, a covenant body that have come together. Work out your salvation as you, as you live well together in the covenant community. Work out your salvation. But let's notice something else. The Bible also says in the next verse, verse 13, for it is God who works in you. 
That word in verse 13 is a pretty important one. The word that begins at four. So it says, you are to work out your salvation. But the ground of all that, the foundation of all that, is that God has worked in you. For God has worked in you. You can only work out your salvation because God has began this good work in your life. He's working. You, there, there is real work that you do, but it is grounded and undergirded by God. God is at work in the same direction. And notice the words there. It is both to will and to work. If those words seem complicated and, and you're not sure exactly what it means in this passage, maybe another word would be helpful. God is working in your heart, in your life, on your desires, what you will, what you want to happen. God has gone to work on your will, and God has gone to work on your actions. What an amazing thing that God is at work in our desires. Let me say, even if our obedience, our present obedience, doesn't quite match our actions— God is at work on those desires. So this is, what, this is what I know to be true in my own life, is there's times where I feel like God is speaking and revealing things about myself, some of which are not pretty, and I, I commit to fresh obedience. I want to follow the Lord. I want to, I, I want to please Him. I want to do the things that I, He's called me to do. And I have a wave of desire, and sometimes that, that just kind of flames out by the time you get to Monday and you deal with the real, wor- real world, and, and you find yourself back in those same patterns. But then God can begin a work on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. It's God who is at work in you, both to will, affecting what you want to do, and also working. Like, that's the action. So if there's the desires, he's also working on the actions. That's why Paul could say, I can do all things through Christ, including even being content. I can do all things through Christ, who empowers me, who is fueling the actions. I'm able to do that, and God is working all of this for His good pleasure. just don't want you to miss that. It's God's good pleasure, why He's working. So God never gets weary at working out His will in the life of a believer. God never gets weary of that. He never gets tired. There's no kind of collective sigh in heaven when He's got to empower you to do what's right. It's like, Again, I wish they could take care of themselves. Again, I've got, to, I've got to give them fresh desires. I wish they could just get on the ball. There's no weary in this. This is God's good pleasure. So this is what I know God takes pleasure in. God takes pleasure in, in meeting those prodigals who have strayed away from God, who may even today think they have made the catastrophic mistake, that there just is no, no returning from that. God is at work in them. God is at work in you. And he takes good pleasure in welcoming you back and calling you back home. Saying it doesn't matter how far you've gone. He takes, he takes pleasure in welcoming those self-righteous Pharisees who kind of have their arms crossed just waiting for everybody else to make a mistake but never see their own sin. And then, and then, and then God devastates them with their own sin. And God welcomes us back. And he begins to go to work for his good pleasure on our desires and on our actions. This is great news God has committed to my growth. So this is what, this is what what's gets a little bit tricky in these verses, is we've got, in verse 12, we've got our work, 
In verse 13, we've got God's work. Like, how do you put those together? Clearly says, you are to be at work, working out your salvation. And it clearly says, for God is at work in you. What this doesn't mean is that we kind of take turns at it. So God says, you know what, you guys, you work for about two weeks, and then when you, when you mess up, I'll come in, then I'll work for a little while. And then when, when, when I think you're back up to it, then, you, then we'll just take turns back and forth. That's not, that's not what this verse presents. It also doesn't present kind of this picture where we, kind of like we're, we're trying to get this stop car going, and we're all pushing, and God's pushing, and I'm pushing, and one, two, three, and we're all going to push together. It, this isn't exactly what it says either. It kind of has two different spheres of work. I mean, God, God is working in the universe. He's in charge of it all, and he's working sovereignly over the course of all of eternity with all power at his discretion, and I don't have that, but yet I'm called to work. I have a limited scope of responsibility, a, a limited scope of energy, and I'm called to work in that, and God is working on a grand scale, and both of those are going on at the same time. We don't have to balance these out or try to explain explain something away or kind of say, well, what I think this is saying is God's got this. And really, it doesn't matter what else it says. And we slip into the, well, you know, God's got it all anyway. So it really doesn't matter what I do as a Christian. I can live however I want to because God's got this. He began the good, he, he's doing a good work in me. That's what the verse says. I don't think the New Testament ever reads like that. As if it doesn't matter what effort you give. At the same time, I mean, we, we, we can fall into another mindset in that it's all up to me mindset. It's all up to you. And God's on the sideline and the best he can do is kind of cheer us along and go, I, yo, keep at it. I, I wish I could get out there and play the game, but I'm just over here. And all I can do is be you know, the biggest cheerleader of all, saying you can make it. I, I, I believe in you. If we fall into that mentality. We forget something important. When I'm tempted to think that it doesn't really matter whether I sacrifice, doesn't matter whether I love, doesn't really matter whether I obey God's got it anyway, I need to hear loud and clear. Work out your salvation. Don't put this on autopilot. Don't assume you've, you've made some decision way back when and that's all you needed to do and whatever you do now, who cares? It's all good. You need to hear Paul say, now work out your salvation. There's other times where we need to hear. We're, we're in danger of thinking it, it really does all depend on me. That goes in two ways in my heart. One is pride. We begin to think, you know, I'm really achieving stuff. God is really, that's really fortunate to have me on his team. And so I find myself proud. I need to be humbled by the fact it's, wait a minute, it is God who is working in you. There's other times when I, I feel sinking into despair. Because if it is all up to me, depending on the day you ask, I don't have a lot of confidence that I can get my spiritual life across the finish line. It's all up to me. Knowing good intentions don't necessarily fuel good actions all the time. If it's all up to me, I might be in despair, filled with anxiety. But then I need to hear loud and clear, for it is God who is at work in you. He began a good work. He'll complete it 
I don't assume everything is perfectly here, clear here. There are mysteries of this, of how this intersects with God working and, and us working, and there's mysteries of that intersection that I don't understand. But I hope you see where Scripture is going in this. In the midst of this passage, after talking about this work that God's doing, another topic is introduced, and Paul is going to remind the, the believers in Philippi that they are living in the middle, right in the middle, of a, of a twisted and crooked generation. It's not hard. I mean, we don't have to use much of our imagination to understand exactly what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a a generation where price tags are rearranged, where good is called evil and evil is called good. Where, Where people pour out their lives and celebrate things that defy God and where things that honor God are like pushed over or it's kind of a radical fringe, the person that would actually give their life to God. What's interesting to me is this was written 2,000 years ago And it was a crooked and twisted generation. And this actually is a quote of something written in the book of Deuteronomy a thousand years before that. So for 3,000 years, people have been living in a crooked and twisted generation. So lest we think, you know, Mark sometime 50, 100, 150, 250 years ago saying, boy, that that was the golden age of people really living right. I think always, always, there's been a crooked and twisted generation. It's been filled either with idolatry or injustice or some combination of both. How crooked and how twisted is it when God comes to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ and says He is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through Him. And He sheds blood for our sin, and a world says, I think there are other ways to God than that. How crooked and twisted. How crooked and twisted it is when, despite all of what God's doing, a generation settles for, you know, I like to think of myself as a spiritual person. I don't care much about Jesus, God, Christianity. I'm just spiritual. How how twisted is that? How is it where we pride ourselves on just being respectable human beings? So we live in a world I hope you realize that it is crooked and twisted. God still does amazing things because it is his world. So what do we do? What should you do? What should our posture be toward this crooked and twisted generation? Do we boycott everything, refuse to participate? Do we vent about how, how bad this world is and we just... The world needs to hear another, another voice, another Facebook post of how sorry the world is. I'm just going to say it again because it's crooked and twisted. Do we find ourselves withdrawing and not engaging in any sort of way? And there might be merit to lots of, lots of different ways to respond to this crooked and twisted generation. But I want us to listen very carefully to how Paul says to respond. What does he say in light of this crooked and twisted generation? He says in verse 14 that we should do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be the blameless, innocent children of God without blemish in the middle of this crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Paul says in light of it being a crooked and twisted generation, you shouldn't be arguing. And you shouldn't be complaining. In view of the dark world that we live in, 
Paul would say, don't grumble and don't complain. That isn't exactly where I thought he would go. But this is over and over a theme in Scripture. Kind of you just take a little glance backward in the Bible when you have Exodus 15 and Exodus 16 and, and Numbers and Deuteronomy and, and you see them grumbling and complaining and arguing. God's people. We grumble because we think, God, you can't be trusted. And, and, and we argue with each other because at times we feel like, you know, the worst possible assignment on planet Earth is that I have to put up with you. It could not get worse than that. And so we argue. We dispute. We bicker. But God wants us in this passage to be blameless. Do you read the words? You see him to be blameless in verse 15, innocent, without blemish. I, th- I hear those words, and my first inclination is to think of areas of moral character, like blameless, moral character. Pure, I, I, I think of, or innocent, I think of sexual integrity, sexual purity. I hear without blemish, I think of like financial integrity. And yet this is not so much in those areas. Paul's calling out particularly in your relationships with each other. This is the way you'll show you're innocent and blameless and without blemish. Not to take anything away from matters of sexual purity and character and integrity and finances. But this is a particular way you are going to show you are lights to a very dark world. By not grumbling. When you're tired. When other things in your life aren't going well. When someone, you pick up on a perceived slight, I'm not talking about an injustice that really does need to be addressed, but something, someone said something, did something that seemed to devalue you, and you kind of like, I, I'm going to watch me grumble and complain. I'm going to let them know about it. When you feel overloaded, when you feel entitled, don't grumble. An evidence of God's grace in our hearts is that is when we trust God and we see a bigger picture. So we have this nasty situation with a coworker, an irritating situation with a family member, a friendship that's gone off, off the rails, struggle with administration or management, and we're, just, we're, we're in the throes of it. But we know God has a bigger picture, and he's working all, th- all this out. We choose not to grumble. You're shining as a light in a very dark world. When you have a disposition of grace and humility toward one another. When I could be less than charitable. When I could assume the worst about someone. When I could choose to throw a stone instead of bear someone's burdens. But because of God's grace, I live in harmony with them. I would say that's the way you shine as a light. Be who you are. Jesus said you are the light of the world. Want to know how you can be light tomorrow? Everything without grumbling and complaining. I wonder how many kids are influenced by people in this room. If we add it up, okay, all the children and all the grandchildren and all the nieces, all the nephews, all the cousins, all the great-grandchildren, represented by your influence, And how are you going to steward that influence? Are you going to complain? 
do they see you shining as a light in a crooked and twisted generation? I mean, God knows they need to see a light. But what will that light look like? Right in front of them are there people who can see God's at work. It's hard because I think as I grow older, I find more things wrong with, with people. I don't know if they're just doing more wrong things or if I'm just noticing it. If I'm just getting more, more grumpy as time goes along. It's not that hard to spot that and that and that and that and that. Then God begins to break down our hearts and say, this is the way you show yourself as children of God. Harmony and relationships. And Paul even connects that with holding fast to the, the word of life. You want to show you have a grip on what you believe? Get along with each other. Don't complain about what God's ordained in your life. If you want to show like you are holding fast to the word of life. Can we keep reading in verse 16? We hold fast to the word of life. And Paul says, so that in the day of Christ, he wanted to see them hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, he might be proud that they didn't run in vain or labor in vain. Paul's saying, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, in other words, lose my life upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. What I love about this is, once again, we get to this idea of Paul's stress in Philippians that we are better together. Because Paul says it is not just like I'm, I'm doing my thing with God and you do your thing with God and maybe we'll meet in heaven someday. He says, I, I, I'm connected to you. I want to run and labor in such a way that it'll show it's not in vain. I want your faith to develop. Do you have that care? Do you have that care for the brothers and sisters that are sitting around you right now? Do we have that care, parents, for our kids that we want to, when we, when we meet the Lord at the day of Christ, we want to know we didn't run in vain because we see spiritual fruit in their lives. Do we pray to that end and hope to that end and care to, toward that end? Or are we just apathetic? Paul cares over and over again in this passage. He keeps saying that, it, that he cares about their faith. And, and so if we were to put that together, we would say in the sacrifices God may call you to make, Paul would encourage you, keep rejoicing together. And the sacrifices that God calls you to make. I mean, so Paul's saying, I'm pouring out my life, and I want you to rejoice in that, and I'm rejoicing with you. And you're sacrificing, and I'm sacrificing. We don't use language of sacrifice a lot. Ancient cultures were far more accustomed to the idea of uh, a literal blood sacrifice or a, a, a drink offering poured out. But we do know what sacrifices are all about. We make sacrifices for things that are valuable to us. So there is a reason why we will give something sacrificially. It's because we want something more. It's more important. So I'm not sure why, but people will make great sacrifices to run a half marathon. No idea why they would do this. They'll punish their body. They won't eat all the stuff I like to eat. But there's something that's more valuable than that time that they could do a thousand other things. Maybe it's completing that race. Maybe it's being, being in shape. Maybe, maybe it's some goal that they have. Maybe it's with, with, a, with some friends. It's, something is more valuable than 
those sacrifices they make. People all the time will make sacrifices for education because they want an education, maybe for their kids, maybe for themselves. People will make sacrifices in buying a gift, and so they'll take hard-earned money, and they'll use that money because someone else is valuable, and they want, they want them to know, you matter to me. I care about you. We know about sacrifices. We know very well about what it means to sacrifice something in service to the Lord or sacrifice something for our career or sacrifice the standard of living or take money and, and give it to causes or give to our church because we're saying I, that's more valuable than spending this in another place. Well, what does it look like when we pour out our lives and sacrifice to God? What we're saying is you are supremely valuable. I will give up. I will give up comfort or pleasure so that I'd be satisfied in you. This may make me happy, but I'd rather be satisfied in you. I will give up I will give up approval from this group of people to know that I'm bringing you pleasure. I will give up power. And I'll lay that down so that I might be your servant. Because being your servant is more valuable than feeling like a big shot. You can just tell everybody what to do. I think this is the value at a church like Ogletown, the value that so many of our, our church family who are walked with Jesus for a while, for decades, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Those who are, might, might be younger in the faith, would you just look to them and see how they have over time sacrificed again and again? Because Jesus was more valuable. They've given their life to the, to to him. As I've studied through Philippians, I've seen more and more how Paul knew there was coming a day where he'd meet Christ. And he's calling on others to say, let's, let's meet him together. Let's rejoice together. Whatever the sacrifice, let's have joy in that. Let's obey with joy and gratitude and harmony for the sake of Jesus. When we hear words like this, I spoke early in the service about routines, and there's a routine generally the way our service ends is we have kind of a time where we're quiet and we think about what we've heard. And the next part of that routine is someone prays. Next part of that routine is we generally close in a song. We could go through those motions again today, and it could just be that, motions you go through. And then off we are to our day. But what if today the routine actually served us and we in a few moments, searched our hearts, and we had space to think about what needs to come next as a, res- as a result of hearing from God this morning. In light of what I've just heard, how should I be loving God? How should I be loving my neighbor? Should I talk with someone about this? Is God doing something in my heart that I just shouldn't sit and be quiet about it? I should talk to someone about it. I want to give us space to think about that. And then, then I want to pray and prayer sometimes gets overcomplicated, but at, at a root level, prayer is as simple as saying, sorry, thank you, and please. Sorry for your sins. Thank you for the mercy of God. And asking the Lord, please, for help, for strength. And so a moment, those might be some of your prayers. And then when we sing in just a moment, 
we're going to give voice to our desires that it's no longer I, but Christ would be first. So can I ask you right now to bow your head and close your eyes? Let's search our hearts. I just want to give you a few moments to have space to think about what needs to come next in your life. pray for for us collectively I have no idea what you're doing on in individual lives, individual hearts but co- collectively we say we're sorry Lord where we grumble and where we complain choosing not to trust and choosing to be angry and fearful frustrated forgive us Lord Lord, we, we do say thank you. Thank you for the good work that you've begun in our lives. Pray that you would bring it to completion. We ask several requests, Lord, on our hearts. And so we ask for new desires and new actions in our lives to be shown all throughout the week. We ask for fresh energy to care about our neighbor, that we might have the same spirit of Paul, that we want to run well, but we don't want to run no co-runners. Lord, give mercy and help in our time of need. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.